This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Misty Little is a naturalist, a gardener, a mother, and professionally, she's an environmental consultant working in GIS, Geographic Information Systems, which she describes as basically modern cartography. She is also an avid home gardener, with her husband and young son on almost an acre of land, some of which is wetland, in the Houston, Texas area. A blogger about her outdoor adventures since the early to mid-2000s, Misty decided to dig deeper into learning more about what other home gardeners were doing when she and her young family settled in the Houston area, and in her free time in 2015, she launched her Garden Path podcast to talk to, learn from, and showcase home gardeners doing interesting things. We spoke with Misty a little while back now, actually on her birthday, to hear more about her garden and plant life journey. Welcome, Misty. Thank you, Jennifer. It's very exciting to be talking to you. Well, I am excited to speak with you. I am sure many of my guests will remember my having been a guest on your podcast. And so it's really fun to have you in the hot seat today. Uh, And I believe it's your birthday. So happy birthday, Misty. Thank you. Um, Thank you. You know, I think when you say someone is a gardener or someone is a garden communicator, certain things come to mind for different people. Give us a really tangible description of what you do with plants in your own life personally and a little bit about what your podcast consists of as well. I've always loved the outdoors and nature and plants really didn't come to my life too much until I got to college. And I honestly, (laughs) I was going to school for marine biology. So you kind of think, hey, how does plants and marine biology work? But there was a coastal ecology focus in that. And I started taking wetland classes and realized I really liked wetlands and plants in that aspect and kind of fell in love with them in that way and moved away from the the world of the ocean a little bit. And over the years, I moved from wetlands to, you know, gardening and containers and that sort of thing through through different places that I've lived. And once I settled here, I really started putting down roots and I realized I wanted to learn more and more about gardening and that's how podcasts sort of fit in. And then I realized there was a niche missing, um, particularly from just the home gardener and people doing things not necessarily on a grand scale, people you don't hear about writing books or doing their own podcast sort of thing. But there's a lot of people doing great work in their own gardens or in their own communities. And I wanted to start showcasing that. So many things to follow up on there. (laughs) Where did you go to school in marine biology? So I went to Texas A&M at Galveston. Okay, right on the coast, yeah. Yes. So I went to school in Galveston. I got to go to the beach and in the middle of the day, you know, between classes. Uh, so it was kind of a perk for going down there. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it was it was a unique experience. And at some point, you moved to Florida, and you got sort of deeply into the, the wetlands and ecology of where you were living in Florida. Describe that. Yeah, my husband went to grad school at Florida Tech. So we spent about two years living in Melbourne on the Space Coast of Florida. 
and getting to know Florida's ecosystems. And I had grown up going to vacations on the southwest coast in Fort Myers and Sanibel with my parents. And so Florida had always had this little spot in my heart. And I was very excited to be going there and living there after after college. And honestly, we, to kind of get to know Florida's ecosystems, we started doing this thing called geocaching. And that took us to all these different parks and places that we wouldn't have even known about had we not been doing that. Mm -hmm. And once we started doing that, we dropped geocaching in favor of hiking. And then it became about hiking and exploring and getting to know Florida, Florida swamplands and learning about orchids and bromeliads in this tropical wild place of the Everglades, basically the greater Everglades and South Florida ecosystem. And we just loved it. Nobody thinks about that. If you think about South Florida and you think about beaches and Miami and sun and fast cars and that sort of thing, but you drive an hour away and it's quiet and you could honestly feel like you're 150 years ago in the swamps exploring and with the plume hunters and all of that situation. It, it's it's quite a fantastical place. Yeah. And so I asked you this about Florida because for for me there's this wonderful arc in your uh, in what I see as your history um, in terms of your connection to the the natural world and this this kind of arc of discovery for you through the the hiking and the wetlands, especially like moving from the coast into the wetlands of Florida or the Texas Panhandle, and you started a blog called Oceanic Wilderness. Is that right? Yeah, I started blogging in 2002 on Blogspot, you know, as you did back then. And so my blog has definitely evolved over the years that I finally got my own website name. I don't know, sometime, sometime in the mid 2000s. And yeah, it was Oceanic Wilderness. And I that's because of my love of the ocean. And now it really should be like wetland wilderness or, or <laughs> terrestrial wilderness or something like that, because I'm hardly ever writing about the ocean. But it's kind of a part of you and it's hard to let those things go. So yeah, I spent all that time writing and blogging, not necessarily for anybody else, but just for myself to document the things we were doing. And there is this direct correlation. Like you can say, I'm not writing about the ocean anymore. But the fact is that especially where you live in Houston and where you have lived throughout Texas and Florida, every single thing you do impacts the ocean and the ocean impacts almost everything you do. Yes, yes, of course. It's all interconnected. It's, so it's all interconnected. And, and that, I think, is really compelling to me being in a different native plant and ecological environment that's far more landlocked and um, but still wetlands are so important and a really integral part of our life even in a dry climate that for you there in a more humid and coastally dominated environment it's it's even m more in the forefront of everything you do. Right, right. Well, wetlands are the filters or filtration system for all of our stormwater drainage. So whatever is coming from the uplands goes through wetlands and eventually, you know, out to the rivers and to the ocean. So, 
you start removing your wetlands. And as we're seeing here in Houston, as we've paved over um, willy-nilly, basically, all of our, our prairies and wetlands, we've we've started running into flooding issues, as, as, we, as we've seen. So there are regulations and rules protecting wetlands, but there's also ways around it. And, you know, they're still considered wastelands for many people. And, and this, I think, for you as well as for me, is one of the great opportunities that we as gardeners have to help shine a light on that, to help actually make even the smallest of dent in that mindset, and to work really effectively with our own little tiny pieces of land to, uh, to change that mindset. Don't you think so? Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. It, it And it's really hard to, as you know, it's hard to change mindsets. Uh, mm-hmm. You work you work with your friends and your family first and you outreach as you can with other people. And honestly, I'm trying to work with my own little community right now on, on some ponds we have here um, and some native plants and spraying issues that they want to do. And I'm trying to, you know, put my input into the conversation without it becoming, you know, the, the liberal tree hugger piece Nick person <laughs> too much, but you know, you have to just start opening people's eyes slowly and say, Hey, well, th- what about this? Have you thought about this and readjusting those perspectives, which if it's been ingrained, but ingrained by our society for, you know, 30, 40, 50 years and some people, then it's really hard to change those minds. So, I know I've taken us down several rabbit holes here, which are all really interesting ones to me. And um, they I see them come out in descriptions of your garden in conversations you have with other people and in your work generally. But I wanna I wanna step us back a little bit. Uh, and like where where did you grow up and and what were the earliest plants and people and places that grew you into this person that would like really enthusiastically follow this path from school to ocean to marine ecology to wetlands to swampland to gardens? So I'm from a little suburb of Fort Worth. And, you know, like most people on your on your show, it's it's a grandparent of some sort usually that has the influence. And it was my, my maternal grandmother. She was the big gardener. Um, she grew roses and she grew a huge backyard garden, mostly because she she didn't have a lot of money. So she had to put away a lot of her own food. And it was partly a byproduct of, you know, growing up in the Depression and um, doing that sort of thing from her own family life. But also my paternal grandfather, he also had a large garden. And so I, I kind of gleaned a lot of that from them and just enjoyed spending time on in their yards when we would visit. And, you know, it's not like I was out there knowing exactly which iris variety she was growing or which roses or any necessarily asking her any of those questions. It was more of the experience and the feeling and just seeing it and being involved with it just off to the side is probably what was ingrained in me that way. Mm-hmm. And so sometime in middle school for me was the early 90s, and there was re- kind of a re-evolution of the 70s uh, environmental era I, I, back then, I would say. So there was a lot more interest in recycling and saving the earth and 
a lot of shows on kids shows at that time, I feel like we're focusing on that. And I think that kind of brought to light more of an interest in the environment for me and turning it into, hey, maybe I'd like to be an oceanographer or a marine scientist one day. And my goal was to decode dolphin languages and, <laughs> you know, those things you think of when you're 12 and what you really would like to do when you're, you know, this hypothetical grand job you're going to do when you're 30. And that kind of has how that all started and just becoming interested in that. But it really just didn't, I don't think that all developed too much until I got to college really heavily and, and started thinking about it in a more broad scale and realizing just what the impacts of our agriculture systems had on the environment and learning about the dead zone off of the coast of Louisiana and the Gulf of Mexico and learning what shrimping does and just seeing all of this stuff come together is really where I realized um, what I'd been missing all those years and, and, and wanted to learn even more about that. And so when did you first start your own first home garden of whatever variety or form that might have taken? Uh, well, in college, I tried to grow some Mexican heather in containers on my porch, but they always died because I was not watering them and <laughs> that sort of thing. You know, when you're in college, you're not really thinking about watering your garden plants too much. But it was definitely when we went to Florida and we had a balcony garden in Melbourne. And it was just plants we bought at Walmart or Home Depot or any kind of box store like that. And nothing spectacular, but Florida had cool tropical things that we didn't certainly grow in Fort Worth or, or mm. Galveston. So it was all interesting to us. And then we did what everybody else is doing right now and starting avocados and pots and <laughs> all that stuff you do when you're just starting out. And it really just became snowballed from there was, you know, five containers to 25 to multiple loads of filling our trucks up with plants to move to different places we moved to in South Florida after that. And <laughs> just this ever expanding container garden. And then how did you get from the Space Coast in Melbourne to Houston? We decided to, Florida had the, we had the 2008 crisis and Florida's housing prices were astronomical and they still are. So we just kind of wanted to come back to Texas where we could actually afford to live. <laughs> and our family was here and, you know, my brother was starting to have uh, a family and we, we wanted to be close to family. So we kind of did an intermission between work life and we went on the Appalachian Trail and through Hike That in 2010. And that was an amazing experience, as you can imagine. And then we had a little bit of time. We built our bank account back up, did some work, and then went back on went back to Florida one last time and threw hiked the Florida Trail in 2011. And then, mm. and then after that, we came back to Houston and, and settled down. We got a, in a community garden at first, and I think the community garden was really our first time doing an actual edible garden in Florida. We didn't really dip into edibles too much. And then finally found our house in 2012 and really started putting down the roots. And you have, I think, a, just a little bit bigger than an acre piece of land that you're gardening on now. Correct. Describe that garden and, and how it has evolved and taken shape over, over this stretch of years since you first became in relation to it. So in... June of 2012, we were really 
coming off of a pretty severe drought from 2010 to 2011. Texas lost a lot of trees due to that drought. There were wildfires. People were having, in the hill country, people were losing water in their wells. You know, their wells were running dry. It was was pretty brutal. And so when we moved here, that's kind of how our landscape looked. There were probably 10 or 12 dead trees that we had to take down, and most of them were loblolly pine. There were a few hardwood oaks and things like that. But uh, these, you know, towering pine trees that had to be cut down and laid down in this, just basically a pile of pine trees all over our yard for months because we had to cut them up and then try to burn them and, mm-hmm. and, or, or do something with them. And it was really just like starting from scratch here, basically. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That must've been, I'm just imagining what it, what that must've felt like to start out on the land by removing the biggest trees in the environment. Yeah, it was pretty brutal. It went from, you know, I can imagine this place being a fairly shady forested landscape to opening up the canopy quite mm-hmm. a bit and having a lot more the grass really has filled in and it was definitely not it was more of a less sparse understory than it used to be and trying to tame invasive species we had a lot of chinese tallow um we have about i don't know 100 150 feet of pond frontage so the chinese tallow like prefer a bit of a wetter area though they can live in uplands as well and having to remove invasive species, we have wild taro, uh, the calacasia esculenta, all on the pond shoreline as well. And it's really been, it's pretty amazing to take something that is nothing and try to shape it into what you would like it to look like, but also keep it in with the aesthetics of its natural state. <laughs> and so when you when you say that, give us a description of what you had in your mind's eye in 2012, you wanted it to work towards and how you wanted to work with it towards this. And then maybe talk about how that's changed over time, maybe, if it has. Well, I think we definitely wanted to, for the most part, keep the general part of the landscape in a native space. So the trees we that removed we tried to replace with other native species um some of them were like bald cypress or tupelo um along the pond so they're going to be able to handle that wet area a little bit better so we're Mm -hmm. taking down those chinese tallow trying to make that landscape a little bit better the pine trees we've also tried to replace with native fruit trees i mean we have replaced a couple of the pine trees but we've also brought in several um like I said, the native fruit trees. We also have native oak trees, swamp chestnut oak. When you first come up to your your property, do you encounter the house first, or do you encounter land first? Like, how do you how do you like in terms of where the house is? How does the garden lay out around it, and where is the pond in relation to the whole property? Like, is it right in the middle? Is it on the edge? Okay. Yes. So we, when you pull into the property, you are basically faced with about 150 feet of landscape first. So you have a native area up front with yopan hollies and sweet gum, and uh, there's a live oak that's 
on the small side and maybe in 150 years, it'll be nice and gorgeous. <laughs> I won't be here to enjoy it, but it's on the small side now. We took out some magnolias that were poorly placed under the power line that would get hacked by the, the tree trimming crews. And we removed those and replaced those with Mexican plums, which are native, and try to have some smaller trees that would actually fit in with, with that landscape up, landscape up front. And then right behind that is actually where we put our edible garden. It happened to be the best place. <laughs> it's actually a lower place. We had to bring in dirt to fill that area up. It is a low spot. It does flood. Um, if you've seen my Instagram post, you know it's it's flooded in the past. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's just something we deal with. But there's not really a good space anywhere else in the yard with light and upland area. And then we also have to contend with our septic system. So keeping all of that in mind, it's, it's, it's kind of a weird spot, but it's in the front yard, which is not common. And then we actually have a, quite a bit of an open space from that point up to the house with the trees we've, we've planted. We have two swamp chestnut oaks on either side of the driveway as you come in. We have a bur oak, a, another um, Mexican plum. We've planted along the fence line, parsley hawthorns, and some amorpha paniculatas, um, a bunch of different native species that you don't necessarily find for sale at, right. at a local nursery. Things we've come into contact with from other plant friends or botanists and things like that. Uh, we started from seed. And then, yeah, up, up at the house is really where our, like, the formal type garden setting is, where we have a mix of native plants and, you know, non-native things that we enjoy, but that can survive in our garden. And then directly behind that is another, is our backyard, which is an open space as well. It has a mulberry, it has most of the pine trees. We have a couple, we're trying to install a little orchard of citrus and peaches as well. And then he slopes down to the pond, which is what we are working on landscaping with native plants. We have Iris virginica, we have Thalia geniculata, which is called um, alligator flag. And if you see that ever planted in swampy areas, it's usually because there's alligators in the area. It's a deeper water kind of plant. And it, yeah, it's, it's a peaceful, peaceful little piece of property. Do you have alligators? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> they, they occasionally people say there's alligators, but I don't think there's actually alligators. I think people see um, otters or beavers, which we do have on occasion, but I have never seen an alligator. Thank goodness. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Misty Little is a naturalist, a gardener, a mother, and professionally, she's an environmental consultant working in GIS, Geographic Information Systems, which she describes as basically modern cartography. Misty is also an avid home gardener. She gardens in the Houston, Texas area on almost an acre of land. We'll be right back with more after a break. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. Thank you to all of you who've shared your knowledge here, who share it in comments and stories with me, who share Cultivating Place as both an ethos and a radio program and podcast forward with others, your friends, your neighbors, your colleagues. 
Recently, Jessica2007 wrote this review on the iTunes Apple Podcasts site. I love listening to Cultivating Place while working in my garden. I actually save new episodes for garden time. Sometimes us serious backyard gardeners get so caught up in the never-ending to-do list that suddenly it becomes stressful. So when I listen, Jennifer pulls me back into the true spirit of my endeavor, my purpose and place in this world, in my garden, and what an important endeavor it is for both my environment and place and my own well-being. Thank you, Jessica. 2007. I couldn't have said it better myself. This person-to-person, garden-to-garden connection through time and space is how this program grows. So thank you. Now back to our conversation with Misty Little, host of the Garden Path podcast and home gardener. This is Cultivating Place, Conversations on Natural History and the Human Impulse to Garden. We're back to our conversation with Misty Little, home gardener and garden podcaster, as well as passionate naturalist, in the garden, in the marina, and on the trail. Having started her naturalist journey wanting to be a marine biologist, Misty migrated upstream some through geocaching and then serious hiking. During the Great Recession from 2008 to 2011, Misty and her husband took some time to recalibrate as to what was really important in their lives. During this time, they through-hiked the Appalachian National Scenic Trail, an iconic and epic trail traversing 2,200 miles, essentially the length of the eastern United States, between Springer Mountain in Georgia and Mount Katahdin in Maine. They also through-hiked the Florida Scenic Trail, a more than 1,200-mile trail running north to south in the state from a little east of Naples, Florida in the south to just south of Pensacola in the north. As we come back, Misty talks more about how her perspective from curious marine biology student wanting to decode the language of dolphins, to long-distance trail hiker, to mother and home gardener, her many paths confluence into an ever more observant, interested, and oriented advocate for the natural world. When I think about your incorporating as many of the native plants as you as you have been able to and you have intended to and i think about you exploring through hiking in florida and then walking these two big trails that encompass some of the really majestic wilderness of our southeast part of the country what is the importance to you of incorporating native plants? And, you know, when you said to me, we moved back to Texas in part because we wanted to be close to family, one of the things that came to mind for me was, did it feel like coming home to family to be back among the the plants that were native to your, your home area? That's a great question. Honestly, 
I didn't know that much about my native Texas plants before mm-hmm. I left. And, you know, I had plant classes in college, but they were focused on the coast. We did take a trip to the big thicket and for a field uh, trip for a lab. But honestly, I didn't even remember much about that until later on. I went to the big thicket and I went to the pitcher plant bog and I realized I've mm-hmm. been here before. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. That it didn't stick with me. I didn't know. I didn't know much about my own state. And it was really Florida that catapulted me into learning about my surroundings. And so when I came back to Texas, I had to basically start from scratch and relearn and and get to know where I where I what was even here. I didn't know that. And so it's been a learning experience over these last well, almost nine years now since I've been back. And and Texas is such a humongous state. So I can learn everything about what's over here in East Texas, which is the piney woods and has so much resemblance to landscapes of the Southeast, like, you know, Georgia and Alabama and North Florida somewhat. But you go to the hill country or you go to West Texas to the Guadalupe Mountains and it's a completely different situation. And you're, but once you learn, your families, you, you learn the basics and you can start thinking about it in a broader scale. You realize, okay, well, I know it's in this family. Well, what's actually native and local here? And then you go from there. And so it's not like it's, <laughs> you don't have to learn all over again. You you get that basic knowledge and you're able to adapt to wherever you're going. But it was a learning experience coming back here and realizing I didn't actually know that much about my own state. Yeah. Well, and I think the more the more you do know, you know, and in Florida and Texas have huge diversity of of native flora because of the different ecological communities and climate range across those those areas. And so the more you learn, the more you know you don't know, right? Like yes, there's yes. just so much more. When you came back with this awareness that you didn't know as much about your home flora as you wanted to, um, what was your learning process? How did you start trying to bring yourself more up to speed and in greater kind of familiarity with with these plants around you? Part of it was just anytime we would go out hiking, I'm taking pictures. I love to take photos and, you know, I'm not necessarily taking it uh, for identification, although now I've kind of started getting better about taking photos of different parts of the plant. So it's not just like this beautiful flower, but I also take pictures of the leaves and the stem and how it grows in the habitat so that I can actually identify it better by by species later. But that was mostly just being out and about, seeing things, taking photos, getting field guides, using Google image search, (laughs) Mm -hmm. trying to tinker my way into figuring things out for myself. And honestly, part of it is that, you know, I work environmental consulting for my actual job. So part of it was that I had to know some of this stuff for for field stuff. So I was slowly learning and I was learning from other biologists that I knew and going from there and just breaking it down by ecosystem honestly seems to be the easiest way for me to learn. Yeah. What do you do in environmental consulting exactly? <laughs> well, right now I personally do mapping and GIS, uh, which is geographic information systems. And it's basically modern cartography. And uh, But yeah, we work with a bunch of different clients on 
whole different lot of projects, mostly pertaining to public lands and any kind of permitting and that sort of situation. But sometimes we have wetland delineations, and that requires some specific set of knowledge and skills that, uh, yeah. (laughs) I love that. I love how that connects with what you do in your own personal life too, Misty. That's um, I, I love when things confluence like that and and kind of overlay with each other because I would imagine, and you just suggested it yourself, that part of what you do with your work then informs what you're doing in your garden. And I would imagine it works the other direction as well, both personal days on the trail and then work days in the field and then coming home and applying some of those principles as you grow this, you know, acre of land for you and your family. Yeah, for sure. I have, I think a lot about how I can just leave certain areas untended to see what grows. And certain times of the year we have, like I said, I mentioned earlier, the lower spots in our front yard that typically flood a lot. And in the periods of time where we have a lot of rain and it's the water stands, I've, it's been interesting to see what germinates and grows during those 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 periods of a lot of rain and these little ephemeral wetland species that that'll fade out when it dries up and you know it's been fairly dry for the last several months and those those plants are gone right now but Mm -hmm. i know as soon as we have three months of a lot of rain they're going to be back i'm jennifer jewell and this is cultivating place misty little is a naturalist a gardener and a mother Her podcast, The Garden Path Podcast, evolved to speak with, learn from, and highlight what home gardeners have to teach us all. We'll be right back after a break to hear more. Stay with us. So, thinking out loud this week, there is something about my conversation with Misty and her work generally that keeps bringing to mind, for me, the work and power and impact of Rachel Carson. That might seem like a stretch. Most people know of Rachel Carson's culture-altering work, Silent Spring, in which she documented the apocalyptic effects of the pesticide DDT on the eggs and therefore the reproductive capacity of songbirds, among other terrible consequences. Her efforts and impact through the book led to the banning of DDT, and though we still have many other pesticides and environmental poisons, physical and metaphoric, to contend with, Rachel Carson's efforts led to a dramatic recovery for songbird populations. What some people don't know, and I love to remember this myself, is that her life work was in fact marine biology. Carson lived from 1907 to 1964 and was, according to her named website, a born ecologist before that science was defined, and a writer who found that the natural world gave her something to write about. Born in Springdale, Pennsylvania, upstream from the industrial behemoth of Pittsburgh, she became a marine scientist working with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service's in D.C., primarily as a writer and editor. She was always aware of the impact that humans had on the natural world, and her first book, Under the Sea Wind, which was published in 1941, was a gripping account of the interactions of a seabird, a fish, 
and an eel who shared life in the open seas. A canny scholar working in government during World War II, Carson took advantage of the latest scientific material for her next book, The Sea Around Us, which was nothing short of a biography of the sea. It became an international bestseller, raised the consciousness of a generation, and made Rachel Carson the trusted public voice of science in America. The Edge of the Sea, her next book published in 1955, brought Carson's focus on the ecosystems of the eastern coast from Maine to Florida. All three books were physical explanations of life, all drenched with the miracle of what happens to life in and near the sea. For me, at any rate, Misty's work, like Rachel Carson's, and our conversation today, reminds me to look up, to look upstream, to look downstream, to look around and to get out, to familiarize myself with where I am, who lives here with me, to get my bearings in the greater landscape, to map my way, and then to embrace not just what is our right to know, but what is our responsibility to see, to learn about, and to know? Now, back to our conversation with Misty Little, host of the Garden Path podcast. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back now to our conversation with Misty Little. When we left off, Misty was describing her own home garden practice. And as we come back, she shares more about her hopes in sharing her own passions forward, from raising her son to encouraging us all to get out there and see, to learn and savor. I think you have a young son. I do. He will be five in September. And what is it like to, you know, especially having grown up with a grandparent's influence in in how you at least felt about plants in the natural world, and and then thinking maybe about your plant blindness in, um, you know, relative plant blindness in in teenage years and early adulthood and then coming back and waking up to this in a, in a way that really lit you up and has directed a lot of your life at this point like how does that translate with you sharing this experience of the land with with him well i think he knows far more about natural history <laughs> than i did at 5 for sure because he has two parents who who love love nature and the outdoors and teach him things and you know something I've been working on myself over the years is to not be so bug phobic on on things especially mm. spiders and so we've slowly teaching him like about spiders we don't need to kill them if they're in the house we can move them outside or if this is the bug oh no big deal hey do you want to see it and let's flip over some rocks and see what's under there. And so he's developed this natural curiosity for nature that certainly I did not have growing up because I didn't have that influence. I mean, even though my grandmother was interested in gardening and and there was this aspect of it, it was still that um, green revolution chemical aspect to it where we have to put the pesticides down and kill everything because it's eating our our plants. Mm -hmm. And so it was, it's definitely a different aspect that we have been teaching him. And it's it's just interesting. He will spot things 
way before we will or notice a lot of different insects or bugs and and bring attention to it to us. And it's it's been really cool to see. And and as you've been there and you've been on this learning process yourself, and clearly you share this garden work and love and adventure with your husband as well. Have you developed gardening community there in your your immediate environment? No, not necessarily, unless you can call the little community you can make off of Instagram a community. Not how I would have liked. And in Florida, we went to a lot of plant swaps through GardenWeb. I'm sure you remember how popular that was at one point in time. And we have not that that community is not really there. And it's just that's something I find lacking that I wish I had. And I've met a few of my Instagram friends in real life and developed some friendships offline like that. But the community, the garden community in person, I'm, I'm, I'm lacking and I don't know how to remedy that quite yet. I'm also an introvert, so I don't necessarily have <laughs> the desire to be like, let's have a big group gathering. So Right, right. And do you think that's just a different culture there in your part of Houston or? I think it's that. It's also part of the culture of today in general, I think. People aren't getting together in person nearly as much as they used to. The gardeners my age, we're all in a similar situation. We're working. We have families. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. it's a lot harder to put together something in that situation versus when you don't have a lot of responsibilities. Right, right. No, there is a, a natural kind of isolationism of um, that time of life, especially, you know, with work and kids and you get home and make dinner. Um, right. And then you're really excited to go to bed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I would like to circle back to your work with the Garden Path podcast and your interests and your hopes from getting that started what would you say are some of the universal takeaways that you've observed from not only your original desire to start it and be in conversation with other gardeners in this way, but what are your universal takeaways about why the garden is important, why interweaving it into these native plants and environments of our places is important? Um, I see a couple different trends, I think, or or feelings. I think, first of all, people are looking for just that knowledge and learning experience and wanting to know more about the natural world. Um, I think it ties a lot into a general wariness of where our environment is going these days with climate crisis, global warming, flooding, the weather, just a general instability. People are looking for some way to have a little bit of a handle of it all, even if it's only in their their own garden. And I know it's hard to feel like you can impart change globally <laughs> with just what you're doing, but I think it eases the mind just a little bit. And I feel like that comes across in a lot of the people that I'm talking to. And it's, a lot of it is the community aspect, too. They're looking for people like-minded like themselves and just wanting, to, even if they're not 
even if they're not on my podcast, like not a guest on my podcast, just listening and the input I get from other people, I think they enjoy hearing those things. What came to mind for me when you were just speaking is this great like deep sadness that we sometimes refer to as the age of loneliness, this sense of separation from both our places and and people and this sort of head down trying to make our way. Does for you and for your husband and your son, do you feel like the the garden is an ameliorating relationship in your life for these things? For sure. I notice for myself that if I'm not, <laughs> have been in the garden for a while and I come out and I'm like, spend a few hours out there, I realize just how much better I feel. And even if it's, if, even if I'm just pulling weeds and getting in that quiet zone where I'm pulling weeds and noticing and realizing all the little things that have been going on without me out there and got my head in the dirt there. And because I haven't been outside in several days, just spending time and seeing what has changed, seeing the animals and the life that I've missed. Like sometimes you, you don't realize that there's a black swallowtail who's been chowing down on your, on your fennel or your dill and you come and find it. And it's just this nice surprise that you've missed. And you realize this, this whole life and world has been going on without you. Yeah. And that's a good feeling, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. When you um, when you think about your garden and you think about your work um, and your hopes for it, what what are your greatest joys? I mean, I, I think you just described one of them, but maybe there are others you would like to add. Um, what are your greatest joys, and how do you measure success on this front? I think my greatest joys just are those moments I have outside in that space and knowing that I'm, it's not for myself, even though it is for myself, (laughs) seeing the wildlife, whether it's, you know, a caterpillar or a wasp or bee utilizing whatever I'm trying to grow and knowing that they are fulfilling their own life cycles and seeing all of that interaction is probably the coolest thing. It's when I stop and actually enjoy the garden instead of trying to see work, which I'm sure most gardeners can relate. They go outside (laughs) and just see all the work that needs to be done and just stop and see, okay, it may be weedy here or the path looks horrible or this is going on, but the wildlife doesn't care. Everything else is going about its life cycle. There's breeding, there's raising babies if maybe (laughs) right now I have baby deer all over my yard (laughs) so if you have if you've ever gardened with deer you know how fun but also uh pain painful that can be um seeing all of that go on even though they don't care that it's messy it's just it's 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 wild it's the world it's it's the garden is there anything else you would like to add I would like people to get outside of their gardens more. I feel like we get stuck in our garden spaces and we don't know enough about where we live. And I would like people to go for a hike. They could go to a park, maybe find a trail that's not paved (laughs) 
and get some guidebooks. Go take pictures. Start identifying what's around you. Pick something that, say you've always wanted to get to know butterflies better. Start start stealthily stalking them <laughs> with a camera. If you have a long lens, you're going to have to be patient for some of these things. But maybe you just want to get to know the, the, the plants in your area. Take pictures of those. Get a guidebook. I have also recently gone down the rabbit hole of iNaturalist, and it's really, it's really awakened me even more into wanting to know things because just seeing the different species of, you know, asters in general, like how many there are of those, and and understanding all of these little niches, and honestly, it's just been eye-opening, and I'm always learning, and I think that is honestly one of the aspects of gardening that I think people are missing. They're not putting it all together sometimes. And if I feel like if they just go out for a hike a couple times a year, start learning a little bit more about your actual area and you can implement some of those ideas into your own garden. And when you look in overview at your own arc of discovery and learning and adapting, and I'm, and I'm thinking here of, you know, a younger Misty at school and kind of, I mean, like literally, I'm, I'm envisioning you like moving out of the ocean, up the path, along the beach, hitting the wetland, and then, you know, like metaphorically finding your way to the garden. And you see that all come together, how they're all related and you're asking people to 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 get outside and and put this all together. Can you can you articulate in in any additional way why why is that important, Misty? I think it's even more important right now. And honestly, it was important twenty years ago. It was important fifty years ago. Um, just in particularly in the day and age that we have now where things are, are rapidly devolving, we're losing species, we need to start caring about little insects that, you know, we may not be seeing on a daily basis, but they're out there and they're important and they, they've evolved with the landscapes and they're serving a purpose or a function. Or it's the plants you see alongside the road and getting to know how they have adapted to the area, what their function is, why, why are you seeing Chinese tallow taking over Houston? What, what's, what's going on? It's all part of the broader understanding of the climate, the environmental impacts. And I feel like if you see these things, you have an understanding of how policies are impacting them in your own cities and you may even be able to I think a lot of it has to do with you don't know what you don't know and so many people are walking around blind and and maybe even making complaints and questioning things but they don't understand the broader aspect of how all the parts fit together and once you start paying attention is when you can start fitting those puzzle pieces together and 
once you start understanding it all is when you can become the advocate for what you are passionate about. And whether it's just having the fortitude to write letters to your, you know, mayor or your senators, or if it's actually taking the next steps to being involved in whatever local conservation groups are nearby you or trying to save some particular part of land from development, once you start putting those pieces together is where you are able to be a better steward and be a better citizen. Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you. And I um, I see in your work and I see in your, your garden heart uh, a sense of participation and agency that I think most gardeners know. They know it intuitively, but they don't yet articulate it externally. And I think it's... Um, a wonderful conversation. Well, thank you. And, I, you know, I try my best and I, I have plenty of work to do on my own and to be a better advocate for myself. And uh, there's always there's always ways we can we can do better. But thank you so much for having me on the show. Misty is a perfect example of one of us, as many of us, who learns more through sharing in her garden, on her trails, through her blogs and her podcast. I think this is true of many of us and falls under that powerful African-American proverb of each one teach one. And many more of us learn when we share all of our learning and love forward. Misty Little is a naturalist, a gardener, a mother, and professionally, she's an environmental consultant working in GIS, Geographic Information Systems, which she describes as basically modern cartography. She's also an avid home gardener with her husband and young son on almost an acre of land, some of which is wetland, in the Houston, Texas area. A blogger about her outdoor adventures since the early to mid-2000s, Misty decided to dig deeper into learning more about what other home gardeners and naturalists were doing when she and her young family settled in the Houston area. So in her free time in 2015, she launched her Garden Path podcast to talk to, learn from, and showcase home gardeners doing interesting things. Join us again next week when we are joined by well-known horticulturalist, plantsman, gardener, and author Matt Mattis, whose Growing with Plants blog and Mastering the Art of Vegetable Growing book will inspire. And he's at work on a new book about the flower garden. Listen in for more next week. There are so many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. At CultivatingPlace.com this week, head over to see some great photos of Misty Little's garden and her hiking and marine biology adventures. Our show producer and engineer is Matt Fiddler. Executive producer, Sarah Bohannon. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, 
Enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.